The scripture lesson today is from the Gospel according to Matthew. I'll be reading from the third chapter, 13th verse through the 17th verse. At that time, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River so that John would baptize him. John tried to stop him and said, I need to, bab- I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. And Jesus answered, allow me to be baptized now. This is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. So John agreed to baptize Jesus. And when Jesus was baptized, he immediately came up out of the water. Heaven was opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God coming down like a dove and resting on him. A voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I dearly love. I find happiness in him. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. You know, even if I tried, I could never forget the first baptism I performed as a minister Cherie and I had been married about one year, and I was a 21-year-old student pastor in a small rural Oklahoma community, and the Sartain family had just joined the church after my first few months there. They approached me one Sunday after worship, and the couple plus their seven-year-old son all wanted to join the church, and after visiting a little bit more, they, they expressed to me that John, the dad, and Ethan, the son, also wanted to be baptized. Well, the church had a tank for full immersion installed right behind the rose-colored shag-carpeted choir loft. And so a few days before, we filled it and we used what I believe were the inner parts of a water heater strapped to a piece of styrofoam to heat the chilly baptismal waters. Sunday came, and it was time in the service for this father-son baptism event, my first. Our makeshift heater had only brought the water temperatures up to slightly above teeth-chattering levels, and so I slowly and painfully waded out into the water, helping the dad, John, step in carefully, and then we both waded out to the center of this opening in the popcorn-textured wall behind the choir loft facing the congregation. I said, most of you have met John Sartain and also his son, Ethan. And when I said Ethan's name, I turned around to where I thought Ethan would be, standing next to his dad, I figured. But much to my surprise, Ethan, Ethan was not there, and in fact, Ethan was not in the water at all. Instead, he was perched atop the edge of this glorified cow tank with his clothes still as dry as a bone and pressed against one another, pointing out toward the center of the tank where we stood and almost on cue as I had spoken his name. Little seven-year-old Ethan bent his tiny little bony knees and sprang straight up into the air as he screamed, Geronimo! And what followed that was undoubtedly the most graceful swan dive of all times, at least ever to have been performed in that baptismal font. And then he resurfaced for air right between his dad and myself. 
too short to see over the edge of the wall facing the congregation, I raised Ethan up and I said, well, Ethan, <laughs> dripping wet as he was, I said, I guess my work here is done. <laughs> I actually did go ahead and baptize both Ethan and his dad, John, that day, even though Ethan was already soaked thoroughly by the time I got a hold of him. And of course, his parents were really embarrassed about the whole thing, but after several pastoral assurances as well as those from church members that no heresies were actually committed and that Ethan's baptism was still valid despite the unplanned nature of his entrance into the waters. Ethan's parents pulled me aside in a serious note and said, you know something, David, we're so grateful to have found a church that can laugh about stuff like this. Our old church, well, we cannot tell you what they would have done, but it would have been very uncomfortable. We, we can guarantee you that. And, and this church family is so gracious and so loving and has been so accepting of our family that it, it really just makes us really happy to be a part of it. Now, do you hear the echoes of the text we read a moment ago in the Sartain's remarks? This is my beloved son whom I dearly love, I find happiness in him. Yeah, my little country church and its members were not just saying that they were happy for those newly baptized members, but they were embodying a certain sense of acceptance of these new members and demonstrating charity and a willingness to value human beings that were in front of them more than the actual ritual itself. And I certainly would not call that first church of mine a progressive church. It was a gracious church and a church that valued people more than dogma, more than rituals, more than its own traditions even sometimes. Actually, I, I think they got something quite right. That baptism is about God's unconditional love and acceptance of each one of us into this family where love and unconditional acceptance should be our primary way of relating not only to one another, but to all of those that we meet in this world. Now, baptism is many things, but at the least, it gives the church a chance to speak for God those words we also desperately need not only to hear, but to take in at our deepest levels. You are my beloved child, and you I am well pleased. Now, I've chosen this Baptism of Jesus Sunday in the church year to begin this new series on progressive Christianity because I believe an ancient ritual, something central and historic within the life of the Christian faith, is a perfect example to show that progressive Christianity is not anything-goes Christianity. Progressive Christianity actually takes very seriously the customs, the rituals, the traditions, even the doctrines of the historic Christian faith, but maybe even takes them more seriously than fundamentalist expressions of the faith. But progressive Christianity seeks to take what the deepest, most essential meanings of baptism, for example, are, and celebrate those in ways that are meaningful for people today without focusing on the narrow details so many of our fundamentalist siblings get hung up on about baptism, like, well, I don't know, how much water? Where should we put it? Should we be baptized when we're little or when we're old or where in between should that happen? Now, baptism is just one example, but it's a good example of the differences between how progressive Christianity and fundamentalist Christianity might look at something and have completely different conclusions. Progressive 
Christianity tends to take a wider, longer view of faith, and fundamentalism tends to take a short-sighted, more narrow view, emphasizing the superiority of the most literal interpretations of the faith or of the scriptures. Now, prior to the last 150 to 200 years, most Christians would have actually been, by the definitions we'll talk about today, progressive Christians, and we'll get to that soon. But at least the last couple of hundred years, we've seen a toll taken on the Christian faith. Fundamentalism has many expressions and is impossible to pin down accurately in broad general terms, just like it's impossible to pin down what progressive Christianity is 100% accurately in broad and general terms. But let me just say that this fundamentalist movement these past couple hundred years sprang forth like most with good intentions. It sounds honorable, doesn't it, to take the Bible seriously after all? The problem is that for fundamentalists, they tend to believe that the most literal view is taking the Bible the most seriously all of the time, whereas I would assert that the highest view of the Bible, for example, is not something that can be uniformly set and understood to be literal for every single chapter and verse. I would insist, for example, that the Bible actually is not just one book, but a library of sacred books collected in one binding, and some of the books are best interpreted in a more literal sense, while others were never intended to be literal. And it's actually an abuse or misunderstanding of the scriptures to interpret them all the same way because some are intended to be poems or stories that inspire or instruct through the power of symbols and imagination. And you can't take those literally lest you miss the beauty and the actual meaning. But fundamentalism tends to treat the Bible as the word of God for all time, and see it as a static, sort of set in stone kind of thing. And if this is sounding familiar to you, yes, it's in the water in this particular part of the country. And progressive Christians would tend to view the Bible in a light that is older and more common of Christians for the past couple thousands of years. That is, for example, that the Bible points us towards the Word of God and contains the words of God, but that for Christians, Jesus is the Word of God and contains the ultimate Word of God. But for Christians, Jesus is the authority. The Bible has become, for many fundamentalist Christians, an idol in some ways because they tend to elevate the Bible above the ministry, the life the teachings, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And in that way, it's idolatrous. Whereas progressive Christians might say, see, you know, uh, uh, rather fundamentalist Christians would, would take a verse, perhaps even out of context, and say, you see this verse? That backs up what I'm thinking. That settles it. So in other words, they would use the Bible to settle conversations, whereas progressive Christians and really historic Christians over the past couple of years have tended to view the Bible rather than as a settler of conversations, a stimulator of more conversations that may never come to an ultimate conclusion, but that create a sense of community and discussion for Christians trying to find their way in a confusing world. Do you see the difference even in the uses of the scriptures? So the word progressive in front of the word Christian is not a political word or a partisan word. It comes from the term progressive revelation, which is this idea that there is still more truth to come forth from the Bible, from holy conversations, from prayer, from our lives in the Spirit and our lives together, that there is still more truth to be discovered. And it's a journey more than a destination. 
Now, I want to take just a moment to go ahead and expand and define just a bit of what we're talking about when we talk about what progressive and historic, for that matter, Christianity is. Now, on the negative side of describing it, it is not fundamentalism. I've tried to make that clear. It rose largely in opposition to the past couple hundred years of fundamentalism, this label. So I think we all know what progressive Christianity is not. But according to progressivechristianity.org, which is actually a very reputable website run by a coalition of Christians from all different denominations and tribes and, and places in the world, they list eight main points that most people... Uh, who are progressive Christians tend to agree about. And these serve, again, not as the final destination, but as a sounding board for future sermons. So this is kind of what I'm going to draw these next five weeks from as the, the inspiration of the foundation besides the scriptures we'll talk about. By calling ourselves progressive Christians, we mean this, that we are Christians who, number one, believe that following the path and teachings of Jesus can lead to an awareness and experience of the sacred and the oneness and the unity of all life. So a belief that the path and teachings of Jesus lead us to a view of the oneness of all of life. Number two, that when we call ourselves progressive Christians, we affirm that the teachings of Jesus provide but one of many ways to experience this sacredness and oneness of life that we can draw from diverse sources in our, in our journey, our spiritual journey. And number three, when we say we're progressive Christians, we seek community that is inclusive of all people, but not limited to conventional Christians and questioning skeptics, believers as well as agnostics, women and men, those of all sexual orientations and gender identities, those of all classes and abilities. That number four, when we say we're progressive Christians, that means that we, we know that the way we behave, are you listening, with the way that we behave towards one another is actually the fullest expression of what we say we believe. And number five, that we find grace in the search for understanding and believe there is more value in questioning than pretending we have all of the absolutes. Number six, that we strive for peace and justice among all people. Number seven, that we strive to protect and restore the integrity of our earth. And number eight, that we're committed to a path of lifelong learning, compassion, and selfless love. Now you can reread those, and I hope you will. Progressivechristianity.org. You can click there and go to the eight points that I just read to you, and I hope you will. It's difficult to lump everyone all together and say, well, I buy that one and I don't buy that one. That's kind of part of what it means to be a progressive Christian. Just like it's hard to say, as I said, well, all fundamentalist Christians think this way or believe these things, but generally I do find that most people I meet in mainline Christian circles, find these eight statements to ring true and be good starting points for thinking about a more loving, historically faithful expression of Christianity. Now, I usually tend to shy away from such labels. However, with the fundamentalist sisters and brothers getting so much media coverage and often standing the closest to microphones, speaking for, quote, all Christians in a surprisingly narrow, judgmental, incoherent expression of faith, 
I find it more helpful than anything just to say, now, I'm deeply Christian, but not that kind of narrow, judgmental Christian. And the label that I've just come up with is progressive Christian. And uh, it may not fit us all comfortably, but it's kind of where I come from. So that's the purpose of the next sermons in these series, to equip us to form our own thoughts, to equip us to form our own convictions, to wrestle with our own descriptions of the kind of community we want to build and express and to be together in this world. Now, most of you know I've been a minister for about 25 years. In fact, I remembered a week or two ago that it was January 25 years ago I gave my very first sermon this month. But about 15 years ago, I was at a point in my own journey where I was not sure I could continue to be Christian, let alone a Christian minister. I was weary of hearing self-professed Christians do a number of things, but one of which was to use the Bible as a weapon to exclude others and use the Bible as an excuse to justify their own narrow understandings and interpretations of faith towards people of other faith traditions, towards people from another race or creed, and towards people of other sexual orientations. I was exhausted and I was bitter from listening to Christians condemn these different groups of people who were other than themselves. And I was just kind of uh, sick of hearing them conveniently send everyone straight to hell except themselves in the way that they expressed their faith. I was so immersed from my upbringing in an evangelical fundamentalist world. It was all I had ever known. It was my context for thinking about the Christian faith. And to be a Christian, I had been raised to think one, you know, how, however inconvenient, must be exclusivist and judgmental. One must vote or act a certain way. One should never ask pesky questions or question the authority of a minister or of a church or anything else. Uh, we were told what to do, but I found my way to this lovely place called Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And through my studies and friendships and the community there, I discovered a way of being Christian that actually encourages free thought, an appreciation for other faith traditions without feeling the need to convert them. I discovered varying expressions of human sexuality and gender, and ironically, a much more ancient, vibrant way of being Christian. Now, I spent this past week at Phillips Seminary once again, now working on my doctorate. I'll go back for more next week, and it's exhausting getting that much intensive class time in, eight to five, basically every day. Um, but, uh, but it's also refreshing. And while I was there this past week, I heard a story that I think we'll pull together this baptism piece we're dealing with along with this idea that there's still more light to come forth in our journey of faith. I was visiting one of my professors during our lunch break this past week, and he, um, like me, is a United Church of Christ minister who was raised in a fundamentalist uh, uh, tradition in his earlier years. His father was a minister in this tradition, and so you can imagine how incredibly difficult it would have been for their family when my professor's brother announced to his family that he was gay. Oh, you're not gay, you're just confused, his parents told him before they sent him away to what we call now conversion therapy, a practice we know now 
according to science, to be more harmful and offer nothing to young people except for making them eight times more likely to attempt suicide, six times more likely to experience deep depression, and three and a half more times likely to use illegal drugs, and three and a half times more likely to contract a sexually um, transmitted disease or HIV, yet it's still legal, by the way, in 41 states, including Oklahoma. Needless to say, it should be banned. My professor said that his brother was gone about two weeks to this so-called conversion therapy place and, and finally called him on the telephone at home. His brother did. And he said, brother, I have to get out of here. Why? My professor asked his brother. Well, they told me that if I wasn't going to pray the gay way like they told me to, that I needed to start praying that God would just take me home. Take you home? What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, it is what it sounds like. They told me I should pray to die, that I'd be better off. Now, startled and unsettled by this news, my professor asked his brother, well, did you tell mom and dad about this? No, no. They're the ones that sent me here, and I'm too nervous to tell them. And my professor responded to his brother, you just stay right here. I'm going to go tell them right now. <laughs> And after a minute or two of waiting on the phone, the conversation resumed with the minister slash dad picking up the phone. And he said, son, we're coming to get you. And we're leaving as quickly as we can. Whoever you are, we're going to learn about it together. And where we should have been talking about all of this. And we're going to do it here at home because you're our son. And we should have never sent you away to figure this stuff. We should have figured it out together. So get your stuff together. We're on our way, and we're going to sort it out here. Now, the mother and father realized eventually the cruelty of their ways, and obviously it would have been better if they had never sent their son to such a place. But to their credit, when they were faced with the facts and they were faced face to face with their son and the alternative offered to him by this so-called conversion therapy. They changed their ways. And I'm fortunate to know the rest of the story because of my professor. It was actually quite a happy ending. These parents grew to fully accept their own son and later a gay grandson. Now, how does this relate to baptism? Baptism is certainly more complex than all of this. And it certainly does, and, and it stands for many other things. But at the most basic level, Christian baptism gives the church the opportunity to speak those wonderful words to one another, to look each other eyeball to eyeball and say, you are God's beloved child, and in you God is well pleased. Those words can save lives just like my professor's brother, and they just might be able to save the world through Christians that see the big picture and aren't too shy to share this message of unconditional love with the whole world, one person at a time. You are God's beloved in whom God is well pleased. May God grant us the vision and the courage to build such a world. Amen.